Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Romans chapter 6, where my Bible is opened up. I'll invite you to be finding Romans chapter 6 in your Bible as well. Lots of Bible this morning, and so you'll want to follow along, not only in Romans 6, but in all the other passages of Scripture that we'll be reading and talking about and thinking about for these next few minutes as we open up the Word of God. And as you're turning to Romans chapter 6, let me just echo the welcome that's been extended to you already. It is great to see everybody this morning. We do have just a fine number in attendance. So glad that you're here, especially to our guests. We have a number of visitors with us, and we appreciate very much you coming our way and pray that everything that we're doing today, that you find those things to be done in harmony with the Word of God. And if you find that it's not, and especially for these next few minutes, you hear me say something that is out of step with what the Scriptures teach, you bring that to our attention, and we'll be glad to sit down and study those things from the Bible together. Let me give a quick programming note for next Sunday, and let me ask you as well about how you're doing with Bible reading. We are now at the midway point of the year, which means we're also at the midway point in our Bible reading schedule for this year as we're reading through the New Testament. If you're up to date on that, great, thumbs up for you. If you're not up to date on that, that's okay, because right now would be a really great time to get right back into it. We will be reading this week in the schedule in the epistle of 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to Timothy. And I really want to encourage you to read that. Even if you're not going to get on the Bible reading train, I want to encourage you to read that anyway between now and next Sunday. It's four chapters. It's really short. You can probably read it all in like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. It won't take an awful, awful lot of your time. Read that, and I think that will give you a better appreciation for what we'll talk about next Sunday morning. So I'm going to preach from 2 Timothy and kind of take a, a big picture view of that book and just some big themes that I found uh, in my reading and my study of that book. And so be ready for that next Sunday. Right now, though, how about we talk about Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, I'm reading here beginning in verse 16 where the Apostle Paul writes this, Romans 6, verse 16, Paul asks, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Drop down to verse 20 now. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. This Wednesday, our nation will pause to set off fireworks and to eat hamburgers and hot dogs, all in celebration of the 4th of July, a day that our country celebrates its independence, its Freedom. And if there's one thing that Americans just absolutely love, it's freedom. We love our freedom. In July of 1776, we declared our independence from England and making it clear and announcing to the world that we are free from the reign and rule of the English monarchy. 
And in the years since, we have shown that we still very much love freedom. We have actually fought in world wars involving ourselves even in the affairs of other nations because we want to see freedom ring not just in this land, but we want to see freedom ring all over this world. And we have even engaged in civil wars. I think about a specific civil war that occurred in this country in which the dominant issue of that war was independence. The freedom of all people. We love freedom. Think about that last line in our national anthem. Or the land of the free and the home of the brave. You go to ball games. everybody just sings that last line with such gusto. We love that. We love to talk about that. We love to think about that. We love to sing about that. We love to celebrate that. And indeed, we should be thankful for all of the many blessings and all of the many privileges that come with being a free people. But I wonder sometimes, I wonder that as we celebrate the United States of America for all of the freedoms that we enjoy here, I wonder if we have ever noticed that the dominant image for Christianity in the pages of Scripture is not a picture of freedom. Particularly the idea of self-possessed freedom. In fact, in the text that we just read in Romans chapter 6, Paul actually says that there is no such thing as absolute freedom. Paul says that everyone is serving someone. And what Paul calls his readers, what he calls us to be, is not to be free, but he actually calls us to be slaves. Slaves of God, verse 17. Slaves of righteousness, verse 22. And I want you to know this morning that it's not just Romans 6 that makes that point. The entire New Testament is littered with that kind of slavery sort of language. There are no less than 13 parables of Jesus in which slaves pay a major part and role in those stories. I'm thinking, for example, about the parable of the talents. Do you remember that parable? Where the master is going to go on a trip, and so he entrusts some talents, some units of money, to his slaves. Now, we know that when we read those parables, we know who the master is in the parable, right? The master, that's God. It always represents God. So the question is, who are the slaves? Who are those slaves? That's, that's us. We are the slaves. And maybe that would explain why no less than five New Testament writers introduce themselves to their audience by saying, I, Paul, I, Peter, I, James, I, Jude, I, John, am a slave of Christ. In the New Testament world, the idea of a slave was not just a metaphor. It was not just a figure of speech. No, in the New Testament world, there were as many as 10 million people who knew firsthand about slavery because they were literally enslaved. It is estimated that about one-fifth of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. And so maybe it is time, especially at this time of the year, and in a culture that is so in love with shouting freedom, freedom or the land of the free and the home of the brave, maybe it is time for us to get into the Word of God and to think very, very carefully about what it means to be a slave. To be a slave of Jesus the Christ. 
This morning I am preaching on something that I must tell you has caused me to seriously re-examine my Christianity. And I hope that it will have the same effect on you this morning. As we think about who we are, our identity in our relationship to the Lord. This morning I want all of us to be able to leave here today with a deeper and more abiding recognition that we are slaves of Christ. And that needs to begin with just a little bit of discussion about the term itself. Let's talk about that term slave. Because you might be thinking to yourself, slave? Slave, Josh, I I don't really recall hearing that word used that much in the New Testament. I don't really recall that being used as an idea to describe who we as Christians are. What exactly are you talking about here? Well, would you look with me? Just look in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, I'll show you why it is that I think we kind of struggle with appreciating the idea of being slaves. In Revelation chapter 1, look in verse 1. John begins the apocalypse with this word, these words in Revelation 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant... John, I believe the problem that we have with this slave business is that more often than not, our English translations, they don't use the word slave. Instead, they more oftentimes use the word servant. Now, if you're reading from a New American Standard Bible this morning, then as we read Revelation 1 verse 1 there, you probably noticed a slightly better term, the word bond servant. But most of the time, the Greek word that would be better translated as slave, more often than not, our Bibles translate that as servant. Now, there are some occasions in the Bible where the translators are they're kind of forced to use the word slave. They really just don't have any choice. I'll give you an example of that. Look in 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's given some contrast as he talk, talks about who we are in the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says in verse 13, he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Do you see that word slaves? That's actually the exact same Greek word that we just read in Revelation 1 verse 1, but it was translated as servant. But of course here in this verse, instead of it being translated as servant, the translators really kind of almost have to use the word slave. And why? Well, because the opposite of free is slave. If you say free or servant, that just doesn't really work well. That just doesn't taste right. They almost have to translate it as slave. But in fact, you should know that there are no fewer than six Greek words that can be translated as servant, and none of those are what we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians 12 or what we just looked at in Revelation chapter 1. And I'm going to tell you this morning that that troubles me a little bit. Because today in our time, when people think of a servant, what kind of an image do you think comes to people's mind? Probably something like like that. I actually did a Google image search last night. And nine out of the first ten results were pictures just like that. A stuffy guy wearing a penguin outfit, wearing his tuxedo. He's got his white gloves on. He's carrying around a silver tray. I imagine he speaks with a British accent. How may I serve you, madam? That is the image 
of a servant that people have in their minds today. Yet as we read the Bible, that's not what's going on in any of the verses that we've just read, is it? To be a slave, that's a much stronger image. In fact, in some cases, it's kind of a harsher image. It is an image that is sometimes difficult for us to to grapple with and wrestle with and to truly appreciate. You know, let's just be honest. Our country, our country has had kind of a checkered past with slavery. In pre-Civil War America, slavery, slavery had a very violent and a very bloody connotation. We hear the word slave and what do we immediately think of? We immediately think of chains and whips and the Underground Railroad and roots and kunta kente and racism. Lots and lots of racism. Slavery just immediately conjures up all kinds of painful and unpleasant thoughts in America. And I think that many of the translators of our English Bibles, I think they had that in mind. And I think many of them just chose deliberately not to use the word slave for fear that we might carry over some of those American ideas, some of that heavy freight of whips and chains and racism, that we might carry that over whenever we read that word in Scripture. And so, for that reason, I guess I sort of understand where the translators are coming from because the truth of the matter is, New Testament slavery is not the same as slavery in pre-Civil War America. I need you to understand that this morning. As I talk about slavery for the remainder of this time today, I need you to not be thinking about what we commonly think of as slavery, about African Americans and how they were treated and racism and all of that kind of stuff. I need to be very clear about that. One scholar, he actually wrote the following. He said, in the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by their race or their speech or their clothing. Slaves were sometimes more highly educated than their owners. They even held responsible positions. Some people sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. Slaves were not denied the right of public assembly, and they were not socially segregated. That's a really important distinction. And we need to be able to make that separation in our mind. We read the word slave and we immediately think of you know, Uncle Tom's cabin. But that is not the way that slavery worked. Generally speaking, in the time of the New Testament, in the time of Jesus, in the time of Paul, and in the time of Peter. So we certainly don't want to read our American ideas of slavery whenever we're reading the text of Scripture. Having said all of that, though, I'm still not entirely comfortable with just plugging in the word servant every time this word pops up. Because the word servant is not the same as the word slave. Servant, I look at that servant guy, and that's Alfred. That's Bruce Wayne's butler. That's who that guy is. But you know what? That is not an accurate portrait of what it really means to be a slave. Look in the Gospels with me. Look in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, we kind of get a little bit squeamish using the word slave. But you should know, Jesus was absolutely comfortable using that word. In Matthew chapter 10, I'm reading in verse 24. In Matthew 10 and verse 24, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. That word servant, that's the word slave. 
Jesus frames our relationship with Him in terms, first of all, of a disciple and a teacher. And we like that. We're good with that. But then He also frames our relationship in terms of a slave and a master. In fact, would you look in Mark 10 now? In Mark chapter 10, there the ESV is actually brave enough to translate this word as slave. In Mark 10, I'm reading in verse 44. In Mark 10 and in verse 44, Jesus is speaking once again. He says there in Mark 10, 44, Whoever would be first among you must, must be slave of all. Can I just ask you this morning, how often have you thought of yourself, not just as a servant of Jesus, and we use that kind of language all the time, that kind of word you know, fills our prayers, and we got songs about that, make me a servant, and those are wonderful ideas. But I'm asking you this morning, how often have you thought of yourself as a slave of Jesus? Do you ever think about that? Jesus talks about it and talks about it regularly. We never seem to talk about that. And so for that reason, I want to share with you this morning the two essentials that made slavery what it was in the world of the New Testament. Slaves in New Testament times, they knew at least two realities. Number one, they knew the reality of absolute ownership by your master. That you have a master who owns you. And then number two, They also understood about a complete absence of the right to choose what to do and where to go and I'm going to do what I feel like doing. That was not a thought in the mind of a slave. Now, that essentially is what slavery is about at its core. That is what it means to be a slave. And so if we somehow, when we're reading the New Testament, if we manage to reread those passages about slavery so that those verses that talk about serving and being a slave of Christ, that in our mind what that ends up meaning is that means that I'm going to be up in the big house and I'm going to be wearing me the tuxedo and I'm going to be pouring tea and serving crumpets to all of the guests, then we will have fundamentally and absolutely just missed who we really are in Jesus Christ. And so let me take those two truths about New Testament slavery, and I want to develop two very piercing and important questions for you to take with you today. Question number one. Am I a slave of Christ? Or am I just kind of an employee? In New Testament times, you could go to any major city, and there in the center of that city, you would find a slave market. We've got the farmer's market and all kinds of other markets. Imagine a slave market. And you could go there and you could actually buy a person for five to six hundred denarii. That's about a year and a half salary. You could actually purchase a male unskilled laborer. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about it, that's almost hard for me to imagine. Going and buying a person. Owning someone. That person would legally belong to you. They are now your possession. You own them. Now, with that thought in your mind, can I ask you to read a passage with me? Look in 1 Corinthians 6. Thinking here, using that as kind of the backdrop, the idea of owning a person, 
Think about that now as we read 1 Corinthians 6. This is maybe a verse you've read or you've heard many times before, but I want you to think about it with this slavery idea. In 1 Corinthians 6, I'm reading in verse 19. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Christian, Jesus owns you. He bought you. You are His. You are His property, if you will. Jesus has absolute ownership of you. Now, once again, this is why I do not prefer the term servant as opposed to the term slave here. Because whenever we hear and talk about the idea of a servant, what do we think of? Well, we think of, we think of like a job. In fact, sometimes we talk about some of those verses in the New Testament that use the word servant, and we just kind of make the comparison to our jobs that we have today. We think that we're talking about work. We're talking about being an employee in a company. If I should decide that we're going to hire ourselves a servant, and honey, I'm thinking maybe we could use a butler over at McKibben Manor. There's some butling that needs to be done around our house there. But if we decided that we are going to hire a servant, what exactly would that mean? Well, that would mean this man, this person would come and he would report for duty each day. He works for me. He does the task that I assigned him to do. And then at the end of that day, after he's done all of his work and he's put in his time, what does he do? He punches out. And then he goes home. He does whatever he wants to do. He's off the clock. He's not working now. He's, he's free to do what he wants. I have no control over what an employee of mine does whenever he is away from the workplace. In fact, sometimes employers and businesses, they'll even try to kind of police and, and have some control over what their employees do do outside of the workplace. They'll try to lay down edicts and say, you know, we don't want our employees visiting these kinds of establishments. And we don't want our employees doing these sorts of things and going to these sorts of places. And of course, what is people's response to that? Generally, people's response is, hey, you can't tell me what to do. I'm off the clock here. You can't tell me what to do in my own free time. But you know, for a slave, For a slave, it doesn't work that way. If you're a slave, you don't ever get off of work. A slave is always at the beck and call of his master. Because it's not a job for a slave. Slaves don't just pull a shift and then they punch out and clock out and they go home to their families. No. And most importantly, think about this, think about the job comparison. What do we do whenever we're working in a job that we just don't particularly like? Maybe we just don't like the work. Maybe we just got annoying co-workers, the the boss is pushy, we don't get paid enough. What do we do when we reach that point? We quit. We walk in one day and say, I'm out of here. And then we walk out. We do that. We put in our notice and we just quit that job. But when a slave quits, do you know what that's called? That's called running away. And in the Roman world, runaway slaves were hunted and tracked down. And when they were caught, they branded an F across their forehead for fugitive. You see, you are owned when you are a slave. Look in 1 Corinthians 7, just look across the page. 
In chapter 7, there Paul reminds freed men and slaves, because there were real slaves in that day and time, he reminds them that just the same, in Christ, you are owned. In 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 22, for he who has called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were, Paul says it once again, bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Are you starting to see now why it is important for us to think of our Christianity in terms of slavery? Because my fear is that there are too many Christians who see their walk with the Lord as this employer-employee kind of relationship. They work for Jesus on Sundays. But of course, as soon as that final amen is said, that final amen just kind of almost serves like the five o'clock whistle. Oh, time to go. Going to hit that door and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to live how I want to live there. And you know, you know we've got to have people like that. I don't know if we have people like that amongst this crowd, but you know we've got to have people like that amongst God's people. People who treat Christianity like it's some kind of a job where you punch in and you punch out. Let me ask our young people. Young people, you ever been guilty of this kind of mentality about serving the Lord? Maybe, for example, prom season rolls around. Maybe we're talking with our friends about some of our choices, about what we're going to be doing with all of that. Is that the place that we need to be? What exactly are we going to be wearing to that? And what's going to be going on in all of that kind of activity? And what do sometimes, what do sometimes young people say in response to that? They say, hey, I'm a senior. This is my senior prom. It's almost a birthright that I go and I participate in that. And so I am going to go. And I'm going to wear what I want to wear. And I'm going to do what I want to do there. But don't worry, don't worry mom and dad. I'll make it to services on Sunday morning. Do you hear it? Do you hear it there? I'm not going to miss my shift. I'll report for work on Sunday. Or maybe a, maybe a bunch of friends get together. And they're getting together to watch a movie. And maybe just a few minutes into that film, it comes readily apparent that there's all kinds of language and profanity and sex going on in that movie. And somebody says, hey, I don't... I don't think we need to watch that. I think we need to turn that off. That's just not appropriate for us to be watching. And somebody chimes in and says, Lighten up! This ain't church! Do you hear it? We're off the clock! We're not in the church building! Our time is our own! That's our free time! We can do what we want to do. Do you know the problem with that kind of outlook and mentality? The problem is, I cannot find a single verse in all of Scripture that describes our relationship with Jesus as an employer and employee. Where we show up on Sunday, and we do some religious stuff, and then we head out of here, because now we're off the clock, and now I get to live how I want to live. I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. What I do find in the Bible, though, is that we are owned. We are owned by Jesus the Christ. He bought us. He bought and paid for us with His own precious blood. Which means that this, this is not a job. It is not a shift that we are putting in. This is our entire 
life. This is this consumes all of our life. Every hour of every day, every moment of our lives. That is what being a slave of Christ is about. And I need to see myself in that way. I need to see myself as the possession of Jesus. He absolutely owns me. I am His slave. Which brings me then to that second area and that second question about slavery. I need to ask secondly, am I a good slave? Am I a submissive slave? Because part of slavery in New Testament times is that the slave really has no will of his own. What a slave wants to do, how a slave feels, where the slave wants to go, that is irrelevant. That is not part of the discussion here. The slave desires, the slave's will, they're not important. The slave does not choose his own actions because the slave exists solely to do the will of his master who owns him. He has no say in the matter at all. And that is why I always get just a little, I don't know, a little chapped. Whenever somebody starts comparing their job to slavery, people start talking about their boss. Oh, he's such a slave driver. Oh, i got to report to work today. It's like slavery. It bothers me a little bit because that really is about as apple and orange of a comparison as you can possibly make. Back in 2013, there was an NFL player named Hamza Abdullah. He played for the Denver Broncos and then most recently played for the Arizona Cardinals. He was a safety and he ended up putting out a tweet, putting out a, a, a post on Twitter in which he said, and I was going to just put it on the screen, but I can't because it was just laden with profanity, but he said this, and I'm cutting out the profanity, he said the National Football League treats their players as slaves. How about that? He did use lots of other choice language in there, but his essential message was the NFL treats their players like slaves. I want to inform you that Mr. Abdullah He made $685,000 the previous season. He made that much money playing a game. A game that I will also remind you that he had the right to just walk away from. He was not bound to play that game. No one forced him to play that game. He could walk away from that game any time he chose. And not only was Mr. Abdullah paid handsomely to play that game, but he actually had people who served him. People who taped his ankles before the game. People who carried his luggage. People who saw to his safety. People who transport, transported him to the airport, to the stadium and back. People who massaged his back after the game. People who bent over backwards to do stuff for him. If that is slavery, sign me up. I'm all about that if that is slavery. But the truth of the matter is, that's not slavery. Because in slavery... Nobody cares what the slave wants. People aren't bending over backwards to do stuff for the slave. It's not about tending to the will of the slave. No! Slaves do for the master. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, he said, and I'm quoting, he said, slaves are living tools. You know what? That's right. Slaves are living tools. And not only was Mr. Aristotle right about that, 
Jesus would agree with that. Look in the Gospels, please, in Luke 17. In Luke 17, because Jesus says, He says that exact thing about us. In Luke chapter 17, I'm reading here beginning in verse 7. In Luke 17, beginning in verse 7, Jesus asked, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and I drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded of him? So you also, verse 10, when you have done all that you were commanded, you say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Do I even need to tell you that the word servant there, it's the word slave again. Slaves do the will of their master. Jesus says a slave has duty. It is our duty. We're doing what we are obligated to do. Look in Matthew 8, please. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has a conversation with a centurion man. And this man kind of makes some observations about, about who he was and his position of authority. And it just, just corroborates exactly what we're talking about here. In Matthew chapter 8, look in verse 9. In Matthew 8 and verse 9, the centurion says, he says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, slave, do this, and he does it. The master gives an order, the slave complies. Period. In discussion. In fact, when the slave does not comply with the master... Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 6 that there's a breakdown. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus indicates that when that breakdown occurs, it's not the fault of the master. It's not a problem with the master on his end of things. In Luke chapter 6, look in verse 46. Jesus says this, Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Or Master, Master? But you don't even do what I tell you to do? I really cannot emphasize this point enough. If we are to be the slaves of Christ, then we must be consumed with a desire to please our Master. And what that means is is that means that our will, the will of Josh McKibben, the desires of Josh McKibben, those will and desires, those things are subjugated to Jesus' will. It's not about us. Instead, it's all about Him. All that matters is doing the will of the one who bought us. The will of the one who owns us. The will of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, please. In 2 Corinthians 5, I think when we just develop a greater awareness of this master and slave idea, it's really just astonishing how much it's just found in Scripture. Even when the word master or slave is not even specifically used, we'll just see it everywhere. 2 Corinthians 5 is one of those places. Look in verse 9. In 2 Corinthians 5, look in verse 9, Paul says, So whether we are at home or away, whatever we're doing, we make it our aim to please Him. Is that your aim? Is that what you are all about? If you were to just kind of put into one sentence what your life is all about, 
Would that be it? Do you wake up in the morning and say, I am a slave of Christ. My goal today, my singular goal today, is to please Him. And I want to be clear of that. When we talk about subjugating ourselves to the Master, what we're talking about here is we are talking about unquestioning submission. You know what I mean by that? There are no questions asked when we submit to our Master. Let me illustrate that for you. Have you ever... You ever been talking with somebody and studying with somebody about, about baptism? And you're trying to help them to understand that baptism is it's essential to salvation. You cannot be saved. You cannot go to heaven unless you have been baptized in water for the remission of your sins. And so we're talking with folks about that. We're talking about how baptism, that's, that's the moment where we come into contact with the blood of Christ. That is that singular moment in time when all of our sins are washed away. God adds us to His family. We are now a Christian. We are now saved. And so what do we do to make that point? Well, we go to all of the salient passages. and We get those little bullets, if you will, and we load them into the gospel gun. And we just start firing away. Acts 2.38. Acts 22.16. Galatians 3.27. 1 Peter 3.21. We just fire all of those off. And after we're done firing off all those verses, the person says, eh, I just don't really see what water has to do with being saved. I just don't really see why that's important. I mean, come on, why is that such a big deal? And so what are we going to do next? Well, I'll tell you what, what I'm probably going to do. I'm probably going to go to Romans chapter 6. Those first few verses in Romans chapter 6. That passage that talks about when we are buried, that we are actually reenacting the death and the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ Himself. Oh man, going to go to Romans 6 and we're really going to get them now. Well, let me ask you to pump the brakes. Let me give you a different verse to use. Let me give you a different path to use. Look at Luke 5. In Luke chapter 5, this is not a passage about baptism per se. It's actually a passage about Jesus going fishing. And so we read of this occasion when Jesus went fishing in Luke chapter 5 and in verse 4. When Jesus had finished speaking, He said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the net. You see that right there in verse 5? That is unquestioning submission, isn't it? Do you see why that is unquestioning submission? For so long, I've always focused on the end of verse 5. That marvelous expression where Peter says, at your word, I'll let down the nets. But you know what? I've come to realize I I missed it. I was skipping some other good stuff. All of the amazing things that happen on that day, all of it happens as a result of the first word out of Simon Peter's mouth. What was that first word? Master! Master! I'm a slave! You, Jesus, you are the master! And if you say let down the nets, I'm going to let them down. If you say to let down the nets on the other side of the boat, I'm going to let them down on that side. Lord, if you say row this boat back up on a dry land and cast the nets on a dirt road, I'll fish on a dirt road, Lord. You are the master. At your word, Lord, I will obey. I do not question you. I do not argue with you. I simply do what you say because I recognize my role. I'm slain. 
And I recognize your role. You are the master. Slaves. Slaves do not question the master. And I think we understand that about baptism. At the end of the day, you can argue all you want about baptism. At the end of the day, the Lord commanded it. And we just need to do it. We just need to do what the Lord says. We understand about baptism. But can I ask, what about all those other areas of life? Where it seems like we want to kind of whine to the Lord. And we want to squabble with the Lord. Instead of just submitting to His will, we want to kind of barter a little bit. Oh, come on, Jesus. I'm not going to go and get drunk. I just want a little drink. Just want to drink a little and loosen up and just have a good time. Come on, Jesus. Why do I have to go to church on Sunday night? I was just there this morning. Oh, come on, Jesus. Where does it say that I can't shack up with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? You know, give it a little test drive to make sure that we want to do that marriage thing later. In all of those areas and in a million others like it. We know the will of the Master. We know exactly what our Master Jesus wants. And yet somehow we have convinced ourselves that we can somehow haggle Jesus into doing the things that we want our way. Listen to me very carefully. Slaves don't haggle. Slaves obey. He is the master, which means we do what he says without question, without fail, every time. That is what it means to be owned by Jesus. We must give up our will in order to be able to do his will. That is the reality of being a slave of Christ. One final passage this morning. And it's in the book of Deuteronomy, of all places. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, it is, I guess, somewhat ironic that maybe the most important verses about slavery come not from the Old New Testament, but actually come from an Old Testament passage. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, there are some regulations that are given to the Israelites concerning slaves and how to treat slaves. It begins in verse 12. Moses gives these instructions in Deuteronomy 15 and in verse 12. Moses says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. Whoa. That's very different from our American idea about slavery, isn't it? He'll serve you for this limited time, then you're going to let him go. Verse 13, And when you let him go free from you, don't let him go empty-handed. You need to furnish him. Furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press. Give him some stuff on his journey. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore... I command you this day. I told you slavery was very different in Bible times. But you know, as different and as unique as those verses are, Moses then says something in the next two verses that is just remarkable and is almost unbelievable to our sensibilities. In verse 16, Moses continues on by saying, But if the slave says to you, I will not go out from among you, Because He loves you, and He loves your household, since He is well off with you, then you shall take an awl, and you shall put it through His ear into the door. He shall be your slave 
forever. You know, as a society that practically worships freedom, I think it is astonishing to us that someone would ever choose, willfully, voluntarily, choose to be a slave. But you know what? Whenever the Master is the Son of God, when the Master is the very Savior of the world, whenever the Master in question is the one who gave His life in order to atone for my sins, what I know that I am guilty of, then because I love Him, I will gladly, I will gladly submit, and I will gladly be His slave forever. How about you this morning? Do you have that kind of love for Jesus? Does your love for Christ motivate you to come to Him? Not go running off. He set you free. Now I'm going to run off in this direction. No, but to come running to Him. To come to the One who wants to claim you as His own. To come to the Master, willing and ready to submit to His will. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song of encouragement. And that song is going to be designed to invite you to come to Jesus to find forgiveness. And yes, you will find freedom. You will find freedom from the guilt of sin. But you need to also understand that in order to be truly free from sin, there must be a willingness on your part to be a slave. To be a slave of righteousness. To be a slave of Christ. And I'm going to tell you, for me personally, it's the best thing going. Slavery sounds so negative, but I'm going to tell you, in this context, it is the greatest thing. And so if we can help you this morning to surrender to the Master by being baptized in water for the remission of your sins, as Acts 2 and 38 and all those other baptism passages instruct, we stand ready to do that this morning if you so desire. Brother or sister, if maybe your love for the Master has diminished, and as a result it has caused you to away from faithful service, you've not been submitting to His will fully, you need to repent. You need to come back to Him and you need to serve Him faithfully and wholeheartedly once more. We're eager and ready to assist you in doing that as well. Would you simply just make those wishes known, whatever they might be, by coming to the front? Why don't you do that right now while we stand and while we sing?